as we get started, I want to uh, bring your attention to one of the announcements. If you would, go ahead and pull out your bulletin and let me highlight that for you. You'll notice there is an announcement uh, for an elder time of prayer, elder-led prayer. April the 8th, right? Is that what it says? Let me kind of explain to you uh, the heart behind that. In fact, if you will, pull out your Bibles and look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is an important verse in the book of Acts because it's establishing the foundation upon which the early church was being built. And everything that they would do would go on top of this foundational layer to who they were as a body of Christ. And verse 42, it says this, And they were continually devoting themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, we meet every Sunday to look at God's Word together. I know that that same teaching is, is, is strong within our ABFs, and, and we have a good uh, um, opportunity within this body to hear the apostles' teaching, what's written in Scripture. I think we also have a great, uh, do a great job of fellowship. We have small groups all throughout the body where people are plugged into authentic relationships with one another. You know that we celebrate communion here. We break bread together on a, on a regular basis. It's this fourth thing that I want us to really be committed to as a church body. And that's this idea of corporate prayer. I know that so many of you are faithful and dedicated to your time in prayer. But I think this is an area that we can grow and, and really build uh, ourselves up within that body of Christ through our commitment to corporate prayer. And so I'm going to ask that uh, you mark your calendars for this. In fact, it's so important. You'll notice there in the bulletin it says, if you have a small group that meets that week, we want this to be the, the event that you attend together. In other words, we don't want this elder-led prayer to be just another thing that you add to your schedule. We want it to be the thing that you commit yourself to that week um, as we come together as a church body to pray uh, for for things that are significant in the life of our church family. And I'll tell you, this, this next time, probably the, the primary focus of what we will spend our time on is um, an update and prayer on where we are in the search process for that pastoral position that we have open. It's significant in the life of our church. There's been a lot of things that have been happening. We want you to know where we're at with that and to come together as a body to continue to pray and seek God's direction. So please mark your calendar uh, for that event. And we're going to do this on a regular basis over different things, probably every other month. And so the same thing would apply. We want that to be, become a part of our identity of who we are as a church family coming together consistently for the purpose of, of corporate prayer. So just wanted to give you the heart behind that. Well, this morning I want us to, to talk about living in the balance of extremes. And I think within our culture today, that's a a significant issue because we have a tendency to gravitate to the extremes, don't we? I mean, just spend a little time watching the X Games on TV when you see these extreme sports that people are involved in. It just amazes me. Uh, in fact, I'm enthralled by them. I, I, you know, during the winter season, they had uh, the X Games where they did the uh, jumps with the, the snowmobiles and where these guys would go off of these huge ramps and do all these twists and turns. They would actually let go so that they were flying independent from the machine upon which they originally were sitting on and then get back on and land. I'm just watching this going, these guys are crazy. I mean, how did they even come up with this? And who was the first guy? 
right, who did those, some of those things. I know bungee jumping is an old news issue uh, today. That's uh, something that's been going along around, around a long time. But I wonder about that as well. I mean, who was the first guy who thought of bungee jumping? You know, I have an idea. Let's tie a rubber band around our ankles and find a high bridge and jump off and see if, if it holds us, right? I mean, that's just craziness. We were in Dallas as the family this weekend to see uh, uh, Terry's mom. And while we were there, we went downtown for a little uh, time together as a family. And we were in the midst of all these big skyscrapers downtown. And I told Graham and Grant, I said, guys, can you believe that, that people actually climb to the top of buildings like this and jump off? It's called base jumping, right? They, they climb to these high things and they free fall and then they hit a parachute right before they get to the ground and float to the ground. And I'm thinking, these are crazy people, right? This is extreme. Probably the most extreme is what we saw this past year with Felix Bumgartner, right? He lifted himself in a balloon. 24 miles above solid ground on the earth. And from that position in the stratosphere, in a specially designed suit, he jumps out and free falls to the earth, reaching speeds of almost 900 miles per hour. He's the first human being to ever have broken the sound barrier as a person. I mean, I just look at that and I think, what possesses us to go to great lengths such as that to, to experience whatever adrenaline rush that, that might have been? See, I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I like to stay right here on the ground. In fact, I think that's God's will for our life, and that's why He said, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> My family and I went to Colorado a few years ago, and there was... Uh, a ride that everybody but me was willing to do. It was a like it was basically a huge swing set. And you just kind of went back and forth, you know, real high into the air. But the problem is, on one end of that swing, there was a gorge that went hundreds and hundreds of feet down. And so when you're swinging up, you're looking straight down at basically a bottomless pit. And I said, I'm not interested. <laughs> I'll stay right here where I am on solid ground. That doesn't look fun to me at all, right? But I do also realize that with two boys, you've got to have a balance between the extremes. Because raising boys, you have to have adventure. And all adventure requires some element of risk, doesn't it? So you have to have some balance between these extremes that you don't have to go to one extreme or the other. It's somewhere in the middle. The passage that we will look at together this morning, I believe Paul has the same issue in mind. He's writing in response to some questions that the Corinthian church has asked of him, and he's trying to help them understand how to live in the balance of the extremes. You see, a lot of the, the, the believers who were coming into the Corinthian church were coming out of a very pagan culture. And so they were trying to learn how to live pure lives within their newfound faith. And some of them were uh, sending that pendulum swing to one extreme, and others were sending it in the opposite direction to the other extreme. And so Paul is writing to them to help them understand what it looks like to live life in the middle, in the balance of those extremes. And so that's what we'll look at together 
this morning. Before we do, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. God, it's easy for us, especially in our world today, to find ourselves on one end of this pendulum swing or the other. And yet we know that the Christian life is often a balance between the extremes of those things that surround us. So as we examine your word this morning, I pray that we have a clear picture of what that looks like as you inspired Paul to write these words of instruction that are equally as applicable and relevant as we read them ourselves today. May we be moved to action and understanding just as this Corinthian church was when they first read these words from Paul. We pray this in your name. Amen. Before we get started, let me uh, give you a little background that I think is significant uh, to our passage this morning just to try to understand the, the context in which this letter was written. And to do so, I want to tell you a little bit about this city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a, a, a port city on the mainland of Greece. It was a capital city established by Julius Caesar. And during the time of Christ, it had grown to such prestige that it had even surpassed the great city of Athens as a center of of culture and science within that time. It was known far and wide as a city of tremendous wealth, but also of unbridled immorality. As I got to thinking about this, I think probably a modern-day equivalent in some ways might be Las Vegas, (laughs) a great city of wealth, but tremendous immorality. I remember... The one and only time that I've been to Las Vegas was on a business trip. I hope I never go back. Because here's what happened. I got in a taxi from the airport, and the taxi driver leans over and hands me a portfolio of all the opportunities for prostitution in the area. It was unashamed, unbridled. And then when I'm walking down the street, people are handing out flyers promoting the same thing. It was just a part of the cultural norm. It was acceptable. It was just what you do when you're in that area. I believe the same atmosphere would have existed in the city of Corinth. One of the things that they had that they were known for was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And if you know anything about your Greek mythology, you'll remember she is the goddess of love. So you can imagine what the worship rituals were like for her. We know from history that there were over a thousand temple prostitutes who were employed for the purpose of the pagan rituals that were culturally acceptable in this city during this time. In addition to that atmosphere, we know that Paul writes and speaks specifically to what he calls this present crisis. And we Scholars seem to believe that that this was something in addition to what was culturally relevant of which I just spoke to you about. And and more than likely, it was a famine. We know that just because of historical events and things that are extra-biblical to point to the reality that that's likely what was going on at the time. So you probably could imagine that if you had all this sin and sexual immorality that was going on at the same time that there was this famine, there was this probably apocalyptic fear right, of what is going on. Are we being judged? Is, is What's next? 
And that was kind of the environment in which Paul would then write this letter. There were a lot of people who were now entering the Corinthian church who were coming out of this type of environment. And they were trying to figure out what does life look like as a Christian compared to what was the cultural norm of that day. So let's look at what Paul writes. If you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. I want to read this to you, and I want you to recognize, as I do, that Paul is writing, as he indicates in verse 1, to, letter, to questions specifically asked of him by this church. So apparently they're wrestling with this. And they're trying to figure out what this balance between the extremes looks like. And so they're posing certain questions to him related to the environment in which they live. And now Paul is responding to those questions in this letter. Look at what he says in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a, a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. Speaking of being single versus being married. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. As I mentioned, Paul is writing this response in regards to the questions that had been posed to him by the Corinthian church. And as we would expect, based on what I shared with you about this Corinthian city, some of the questions are related to sexual purity in what would have been a sexually saturated society. Paul begins by saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. The NIV translates that same verse as good for a man not to marry. Now, I believe that's a bad translation. There's a lot of Greek grammatical reasons for that, but let me give you a couple of practical reasons why I think that's not an accurate translation. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Ephesians 5, where Paul speaks in great detail about the importance of the marriage relationship and what it represents as the, the redeeming love of Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. <clears throat> and so we know from that example that Paul has a very high view of the marriage relationship. And so it wouldn't make sense for him to turn around and now speak out of the other side of his mouth and tell everybody, but by the way, don't get married. You see, those two don't go together. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just tell you what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read beginning in verse 1. It says, 
But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared with their own conscience as with a branding iron. Okay, so we already get a clear picture that he's speaking of apostates, people that are not speaking truth. This is heresy, right? Listen to what they're saying in verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul is speaking against those who are teaching that you should that marriage is forbidden. And he's telling them this is not true. This is not right. This is not God's instruction. And so it wouldn't make sense for him to turn around and then do the exact same thing. So he must have something different in mind. Let me give you one other reason. If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you'll just bump up to verse 18 of chapter 6, you'll see the real key point that he's making as he's writing in this section of the letter. He says in verse 18, flee immorality. And then he goes on to explain why. My point is this. Paul has a very high view of marriage. We can look at the grammar. We can look at the context. We can look at the whole of Scripture and know that Paul is speaking specifically here of sexual immorality. The physical intimacy between a man and a woman outside the context of marriage. And he is affirming in response to the question posed to him by those in the church that it's not good to engage in this type of sexual promiscuity that would have surrounded them. Instead, he's affirming that that celibacy is in fact an important virtue of the Christian life. Verse 2 then introduces a contrast to protect from the pendulum swinging too far and the opposite extreme. He says, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. In other words, don't swing the pendulum in the opposite direction and assume that that sexual intimacy altogether is wrong. Just because immorality is rampant doesn't mean that all sexual intimacy is wrong is wrong. In fact, physical intimacy between a husband and wife is both necessary and important to the relationship that God created in marriage. See, God intended for the marriage to be a one flesh relationship. It is the world that has taken this blessing outside of the marriage relationship and corrupted it to be something that He never intended it to be. So Paul is writing in response to their question. He's basically affirming what you wrote, what you wrote to me is true. Celibacy is a virtue of the Christian life. It's good for a man not to touch a woman unless that man and woman are married, in which case physical intimacy is a blessing and not a curse. In fact, so important is that it shouldn't be neglected or withheld. Look at verse 3. It says, Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
And it explains why in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again together, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Husbands and wives have a responsibility to one another. Verse 3 talks about a duty. I, I kind of cringe at that word. I, it sounds like a burdensome obligation to me, and I know that that's not the intent of what Paul is trying to communicate here. It, it literally means to owe someone something. And I believe what it's talking about in the marriage relationship is that husbands and wives share a mutual obligation to the divine blessing of that one flesh intimacy in a marriage relationship. Verse 4 explains the basis of that mutual obligation. Because in marriage, both the husband and the wife relinquish their control of their own personal rights. The covenant commitment that says, I relinquish my right to live my life like I want to. That's important when we enter into the marriage relationship. Marriage says, instead, I now choose to live my life in all aspects for the benefit of someone else, namely my spouse. If you would, look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. And I want you to see the basis from which this principle flows. In verse 19, he's speaking about that relationship that we have with God through Christ, that covenant relationship. Look at what he says in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's the same concept as what he's speaking of in verse 4 of chapter 7. See, our relationship with Christ in that we give up our right to live for ourselves. It's that same covenant commitment in marriage where we relinquish our personal rights to do in the same way. And, and I notice that how they are mutual, they are equal to one another. This is not an issue simply for men or an obligation simply for women. This physical intimacy is a shared responsibility to one another. No one person in the marriage has the right to deprive the other of this blessing. That's why he tells them, stop depriving one another. I've had conversations with people who are struggling in their marriage. And in those conversations, they share with me that there has been a lack of physical intimacy with their spouse for months, sometimes years. And when I hear that, I know that they're in a very bad place. Because regular physical intimacy between a husband and wife is an important quality of a healthy marriage. It is both a sign and a means to accomplish the oneness that God intended. It's based on this importance that Paul then gives only one exception 
as to why this would not be the case with very specific parameters. Verse 5, he says, stop depriving one another. Here's the exception. Except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. One exception. It's a mutually agreed upon decision between a husband and a wife for a, a brief period of time and only for the purpose of prayer. And I believe specifically prayer together for a common concern that you both are going to the Lord together for. To put it in a different way, it's never one-sided, it's never for very long, and it's never for anything but the purpose of a shared prayer. I think as Paul communicates this, it, it speaks both to the importance of intimacy in a marriage, but it also speaks to the deep value and meaning of intentional prayer. It's one of the reasons that I often ask people when they come to me, whether they're struggling in their marriage or just asking the question, you know, what are, what are some important things about establishing a good, solid marriage relationship? One of the first things I ask them is, are you spending time praying together? Do you pray with one another? If, if the answer is no, my encouragement to them is that's the best place to start. Make sure that as a husband and a wife, you are consistently going before the Lord in prayer together. My own parents have told me what a turning point this was in their own marriage. That when they started to do this, it changed how they related to one another because of the time they spent together in prayer. You'll notice on the handout that I've given you, the one question that has been consistent on every single handout is that question of prayer. You see it again on the bottom of the page. Are you praying together? See, intimacy in marriage is an important part of the relationship between a husband and wife because it is an act of, of giving your heart to the care of of another. Prayer is an act of taking that same action in your relationship toward God. It's where you communicate, God, here is my heart's desire and I entrust it to you. It's significant. It's a deep part of that relationship we share with God. And in the same way, that intimacy between a husband and wife, we communicate very similar language. You are my heart's desire. I entrust my heart to you, my husband or my, my wife. Paul then transitions in verse 6 and he says, But this I say by way of concession and not command. Now there's some debate on whether this statement refers to what he just said about the exception for prayer or if it's looking forward to what he's about to say in verse 7 and following. I can see it going either way, but oppressed, I would suggest that it applies to what he says in verse 7 and following. Let's look at that together. Verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. He's speaking of being married or being single. Paul is not giving the command to everyone that it's good for everybody to be single. We've already made that point. Marriage has a high view in Paul's mind. But he is suggesting that a Christian who is single is of equal value to those who are married. 
And I want you to know, when Paul makes that statement in the culture in which he lives, he has everyone's attention. Because this was not a cultural norm. In fact, the early church existed in a society where your self-worth was based on your ability to be married, have a family, and produce heirs. And that's why if you look at Scripture, you see how very often a barren woman or someone who is single is looked down upon as if they have some kind of disability or disease. It may not be all that different than the point I made last week about dating in today's culture. Because I know that young men and young women who choose not to fall into that pattern of society are looked upon as if something's wrong with you. The same thing would have been true within the Corinthian church when people were unmarried. And Paul is being very clear by telling them being single is of equal value to God. And in fact, even has some advantages as it relates to a life in ministry. Because just think of the life that Paul lived, right? It was not conducive to having a family. He spent all his time on the road, traveling from place to place, establishing churches. He was constantly in danger. He had no permanent home. We know that there were several examples of times that he was beaten and flogged and he spent lots of time in prison. That's not conducive to a family, is it? And so Paul would say, it's not good for you to sacrifice your marriage for the sake of ministry. Don't do that. It's better not to marry and to be devoted to ministry than to have a family and to sacrifice them for the sake of ministry. This point is made at the end of verse 7 where he says basically whether you're single or married, the reality is both are a gift from God. I want you to think about that statement. Both are a gift from God. It elevates them both as something that God ordains for individuals specific to His desire for their lives and what's best for them. It has less to do about the choices that we make and instead puts it on the desires that God has. It's a gift that He intends to accomplish His goal in our lives that ultimately brings fulfillment and purpose as he desires. And in verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, remain as you are. Again, not to be taken as a blanket statement or as a command. In fact, in First Timothy 5.14, I'll just read this to you as well. It says, therefore, I want younger women, younger widows, to get married. So, so he's not saying that this is a blanket statement for, for everybody. Instead, what he's telling them, don't bow to the pressure of the culture that insists that your value is attached to a relational status. Paul says, your value is attached to your relationship with God. And he tells them, let him do with you as he has done with me, if that is his desire. Be content with where you are and 
and let God be the one who decides what's best for you. He knows you better than anyone does. He loves you more than anyone else. Trust Him. Follow Him. Because the reality is that any relationship, whether in marriage or just in friendship, is only fulfilling to the degree that we are satisfied in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, start there. Become content and fulfilled completely in your relationship with Christ. And then trust Him to lead you to the place where He desires and where your heart is most fulfilled. And then in verse 9, Paul looks back at what he says in verse 8, and he goes on to say that the unmarried and the widowed should not force a life of celibacy if they do not have self-control. Now, I read this, and, and, and at first glance, I struggle with it a little bit because it seems to imply that the marriage is a cure for uncontrolled desires. That's not a good biblical truth. That's not consistent in Scripture. It's like saying, if you, get, if you struggle with if lust, then get married and it goes away. It's not true. It's like saying if you struggle with, with coveting, once you buy that house, it'll go away. If you're angry with somebody, once you tell them off, you don't struggle with that anger anymore. Not true. <laughs> we all know that to be the case. Instead, I believe what Paul is doing here is he's providing a balance between the extremes. Don't go and listen to what he's saying and say, well, Paul said I should be single, so I guess I don't have a choice. I've got to be single now. He says, no. If it's within biblical grounds, and we talked in great detail about that last week, if you share an affection towards another person, don't burn with that passion and pretend that it's not there. It's okay for you to get married if that is God's will and it's consistent with God's Word. But if He's given you the gift of being single, then be free to experience the blessing and the value of that gift as well. Live life in the balance of these extremes as the Lord leads and not as the culture demands. Now, with that being said, I want to reemphasize a point that I made last week. Because following, once again, this kind of biblical instruction only works within the context of healthy biblical community. Because singleness is not a gift if you live in an environment where no one gives you the time of day. It's not. Singleness is not a gift if you are pushed to the side and forced to live alone. And I think as a church body, we need to examine our heart on this issue. And one of the ways to do that is to think about the statements that we make to people when we learn that they're single, right? Things like, oh, you're single. Well, I bet the Lord will bring someone special when He sees that you're ready. As if somehow our marital status is based on a level of sanctification. That's not a true statement. It's not a good thing to say. Or maybe we say, oh, you're, you're still single. Well, maybe you're just too picky. 
as if somehow God is being limited by our inability to choose. Those are not true statements. I believe as we looked at Genesis 2.18 is a timeless truth. And it says very clearly that it is not good for a man or woman to be alone. And everything that Paul says here does not change the truth of that passage. The single life is only healthy in the context of relationships within the body of Christ. You take away those relationships and what Paul has to say is not true. This is not just about how we live as a church family and how we bless single adults. The reality is they are a tremendous blessing to us as well. Because their life is a testimony and a reminder to us all that God and not family is our hope and our future. God is the one who guarantees the blessing of our inheritance in Him. He has provided us a family this side of heaven with brothers and sisters in Christ. And together, as a church body, we await our future home with Christ in heaven, which, by the way, doesn't include marriage. But what it does include is relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing that life eternally in relationship with God and with one another. I think it's really important for us to begin living that heavenly community right now. This should be a reflection of in part what that will be in full one day when we see Him face to face. So let me be real clear. We need to have singles in our church body. And so let me challenge us to make this a place where they feel comfortable. And let me verify that the answer is not found in a vibrant singles ministry where we sequester them to their own group. Instead, the way we function best as a church family is we invite people into our own homes so that they see and feel the community of relationships within the body of Christ. So that they are a part of a family. That they see themselves as a valuable member of this church family. Developing relationships, not just on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. It's important not to think of church primarily of what we get out of it, but also what we contribute to it. That's part of the balance. Because this is all about me. I lose sight of these other things that I need to be attentive to. But when I see that there's a need that extends much bigger than me, much bigger than me, then I begin to be sensitive to the needs of those around me and develop those relationships as guys and pens. That should be true in our church, and it should be true in our marriages as well. See, there's no denying we live in a me-first pleasure-seeking society, and that can find its way into our marriages, and particularly in this issue of marital intimacy. There's all kinds of Christian books and seminars about intimacy in a marriage, and I'll admit that there have been times and seasons in life where I've looked at those with some interest 
But I'm increasingly convinced of this today. And it is this. That a good marriage produces mutually satisfying intimacy and not the other way around. In fact, if intimacy is your focus, you are focusing on the wrong thing. I would like to suggest that that we look at the, the intimacy of a marriage as a covenant recommitment, and not simply a fringe benefit of being married. It's so much more than that. Now I'm going to make a connection here that may seem odd at first, but I want you to follow me through this as we walk through it together. Let me do so by asking you this question to begin with. As a church, do we have a ceremony ordained by God that we do on a regular basis that reminds us of the covenant relationship that we have with God through Christ? Is that true? What is it? Communion. We celebrate communion regularly as ordained by God to remind us of that new covenant relationship that we share with God through Christ. Now, do you remember the condemnation that Paul gives to this Corinthian church in this very same letter? And do you remember why that was the case? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And as we read these verses together, I want you to look for the basis of Paul's condemnation upon the Corinthian church, beginning in verse 17. He says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which you are to eat and drink? Or or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What do I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. That's a pretty strong condemnation. As you read on, he continues to become more graphic as to how much of an offense this really is. They are being condemned because they are using what God intended for unity of the church to then be for the personal gratification of individuals, for for gluttony. Some are hungry and starving while others are well-fed and drunk. They're more concerned about their own needs. And in doing so, they miss the point of what God had ordained for them to celebrate as a very holy ceremony in remembrance and recommitment to that relationship they have with God through Christ. Here's the connection. The marriage relationship, like communion, is also based on a covenant promise. Intimacy, like communion, is ordained by God as a covenant reminder and an act of mutual commitment. Paul would extend the same condemnation 
if we were to then turn what God intended for the unity of a marriage relationship to be an exercise of personal pleasure. May it never be. It's not about what's good for me. This is a willful act of recommitment that says, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Physical intimacy between a husband and a wife should never be used for anything less than that promise. And that's why when taken outside of the covenant of the marriage relationship, it is such a terrible offense to the God who created it. Every good thing and every perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. Marriage was His idea from beginning to end. One man, one woman for a lifetime. Within its design is the beautiful picture of Christ's redemptive love for us, His bride, the church. And it is protected with that stronghold of a covenant promise. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. I pray that as we have walked through this together as a body, that regardless of where we are, that there is a recommitment that's going on. First to the Lord, in honor of His design and purpose, to see that it's much bigger than ourselves, and that our lives are to display a picture of, of the redemptive love of Jesus Christ that we openly boast about to those in which we live, work, and play. And that we see from Scripture that being single and being married has equal value in the eyes of God and they are both gifts from God, both given to fulfill His purpose and His heart for His people. And that no relationship ever has any fulfillment in our life unless we are first satisfied completely and wholly in our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. May we be a people who believe that, who live it, and who really reflect what it is that we will one day experience for all eternity when we live in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and in love with one another for that which we share for all eternity. Let's reflect that, starting right now, today, in our own church family. As I mentioned to you last week, next week we're going to have the opportunity to hear from three couples who are going to share their story, taking a lot of the principles that you've heard as we've walked through this marriage series together and how they've been fleshed out in their relationships with one another through some hard times in some cases. And so I want you to see practical examples of the truths that we've looked at biblically being displayed in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ as an encouragement to you and as another way to recommit ourselves to what we're being called to in Scripture. So I hope you'll come. And in fact, I hope you actually bring people um, who need to hear stories like they're going to tell. With that in mind, let me pray for our time. God, thank you for the truth of your word. I'm so thankful that um, your word speaks clearly to issues that we probably don't often confront um, 
in our lives and in our conversations. These are things that we more often want to kind of shuffle underneath the rug or, or just kind of stash away, but, but you don't do that. You confront in a very holy manner the biblical truths of what you've designed and for what purpose. So I pray that as we hear what you had to say in your passage this morning, that we would be a people who live between the extremes that we see in our society. May we hold marriage in high value, but not at the expense of other relationships. And in fact, may we embrace those who you've gifted to be single in the ways that you contribute to our body by them being a part of our church family. May we enter into meaningful relationships with them as brothers and sisters in Christ, living in fellowship with one another as we will one day for all eternity. Father, may we recommit ourselves to the importance of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ through faith and trust in Christ alone. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.